I, I think I'm getting old. A couple days ago, I was, I was with my kids and we did this online hearing test. The online hearing test has frequencies and the more you listen to it, you know, it kind of sees how good your hearing is. So I had my kids around, our dog was in the kitchen and turned on the hearing test and all of a sudden our dog's lip is going up a little bit. And all of a sudden, my son and my daughter are going, ah, that hurts. I'm like, what? What do you, don't you hear that? That hurts. I'm like, no. And then my wife's doing dishes. Oh, that hurts. Turn that down. I'm like, what? Don't you hear that? And then waiting, waiting. Then I heard it. Oh, that hurts. And I realized I could see where I gauged. It says I've got really bad hearing. And my daughter says, dad, you're getting really old. What? Well, we took another test, a color test, and I did just as good as you, Jazz. It said I had exceptional ability, an artist's ability, to see the different hues and colors. Let me show you. Let me show you. Because I can do the second one. Let's see how good you are. All right. Number one, which circle is in front? One on the left or right? Go ahead, click it. Yes, the one on the right. All right, let's see how good you are, because I could do this, this one. Which circle's in front? Left or right? The right one is, see? Ha-ha. So, only true artists could figure that out. Anyhow, I figured that out. But today's sermon is a lot like this test. Today's sermon is a topic that is hard to see right away, and it takes time to really evaluate, because normally we don't see it. And today's topic is this. See if you can see what it says. Can you read it? Today's topic is pride. We're going to talk about pride. You, Todd, can you see it? You can't, Todd, you're getting old. So if we can, I want you to look at uh, Proverbs 16:18 as kind of the controlling verse, the verse that sets a, what a general discussion on pride and how God views pride. And then we're going to go into it. We're going to take it in three ways. We're going to talk about pride's origins, where it came from. We're going to talk about signs or what I call telltale signs. How do you know you have pride? And then the third thing we're going to talk about is God's response to pride. But here is the, the envelope verse 16:18. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before fall. Haughty is where I lift my chin and I'm better than you. So pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Problem with pride, it's easy to see in others. It's kind of like the first set of circles. When you look at other people, it's kind of easy to see their pride. The danger of pride is the second set of circles. It's hard to see in me. Listen to what one commentator says about, really, it's about pride. Nothing is so much hidden from man as himself. That is why talking about pride is one of the hardest sermons to preach on. Because the truth of the matter is, pride is, is that thing that the more we have of it, the less we think we have it. The more we have of it, the less we think we have it. It's really crazy. And so... If you are a proud man or a proud woman, you don't believe you're proud, so you don't think I'm going to be talking about you today. You're going to be saying, yeah, like that guy way over there. But all of us have it. 
All of us are infested with it. And we need to talk about it because Proverbs does an awful lot. So the best way to uncover pride is to show you where it began. I'm trying to think, how do I, I don't, I don't want to just give you a definition of pride. I want to tell you where it began so you can see how pride, how it came in, it comes in the same way in our heart. So I want to begin at the very beginning. Does anybody know how Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 starts? In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. Okay, so before all things began, just, just what I'm going to ask you to do is just let this sink in a second. So in the beginning, God. Who is God? God's eternal. He always was. He was not created. He is considered by scholars perfect in His Trinitarian being. He's a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They have a perfect relationship of love and they don't need anything to make it better. So they're not needy. So God is also, scholars would say, He's, he's omnipotent. That means He has all the power. Infinite. Infinite power. He's omniscient. Infinite knowledge. He knows everything. Like he knows what you're thinking right now. That's pretty impressive to me. And he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. So if you think about God, it's pretty impressive. He's amazing. And then it says, in the beginning God created. And that word created means he made everything that is. How did he make it? The Latin phrase is ex nihilo. means he created everything out of nothing. So to make something, he had to first make the nothing to make the something. So everything that is, he put it there. So what did he make? In the beginning, God created the heavens. Stop on that. The heavens? The galaxies? He made them. He made them. Like uh, two days ago was supposed to be one of the biggest blood moons on the other hemisphere. And Mars is supposed to be close. So that it was the closest Mars will get to our planet in 50-some years. Maybe, I think by 500 years. But if you look at Mars, like, oh, that's huge. Mars is teeny compared to some of the massive stars out there. God created it out of nothing. Okay, then he created the earth. So he made everything on the earth, on the mountains. He made the rivers. He made the fish. He made the whale. He made birds. He made DNA out of nothing. He made you out of nothing. In a way, you know how some people say you have a cousin or have a cousin twice removed? We are nothing twice removed because actually we're made out of dust, which was made out of nothing, and the dust made us. So we really don't have much to be too proud about because we're nothing twice removed. So that's how it started. So then if we go to the next slide, here we are, and everything's good to some degree. Here we are on the earth, and there's a being up above an angel because God made the angels, and there's one angel that threw a wrench into this whole good thing God made. His name is Lucifer. If you've ever heard of Lucifer, Lucifer means, really some, some versions interpret it differently, day star star of the morning, but really light bearer. The idea is that Lucifer was probably the greatest, most powerful angelic being who was clothed in jewels. 
He was made to reflect back the light of God. He was made to magnify God's beauty. So we have two lies that came from him, however. The first one we find in Ezekiel 28. You can look at this, write this down, read it later, because it will take a long time. I, I timed it. I don't want you to sit here for a long time. So I timed it. So I'll tell you what happened. Basically what happens, it says he was made, he's a model of perfection. He was in Garden of Eden, he was in the heaven with God, and it says he, my interpretation is he saw himself in a mirror, and he fell in love with himself. It says he became proud of heart because of his beauty. And then it said because of that, his wisdom twisted, it started changing, and then he started justifying wickedness. And because he started justifying his wicked deeds, God threw him out of heaven and condemned him for all eternity. So Lucifer is this tremendous angel who fell in love with himself. That's really where pride begins. It's excessive self-love. And he lies from above. He, he gets us to believe this. And here's how you can tell if Lucifer's speaking into your ear. This is the lie he tells you from Ezekiel. And I like to kind of use a, I, I hear Satan in an English accent. I don't know if you do, so you put your name first. And it'd be like this, Chris, you are utterly unique, special, utterly unique. Actually, it's interesting because theologians would only use the word unique for one being, which was God himself. And now we all use, we use that word like it's flippant. But unique means there's nobody like you. There is nobody like God. But Satan says, ah, but there's nobody. Like you, Chris, you are special. You are better. Doug, you are better than everybody in here. And this makes you superior to all others, even God himself. That's where Isaiah 14, 14 comes in. Satan, is, or, or Lucifer gets so full of himself that he wants God's throne. I'm going to be like God. And this is really the power of sin. I think I really am better. And I deserve. And I'm entitled. And I'm exempt from what everybody else is about. I've been here as senior pastor for a while. My second year, there was a guy. You won't know him, and so I can talk about him. But if he's here, I'd say the same thing to him. Because I did, I'd say this to him. He's the most arrogant man I've ever met. This man would come up to me and flatter me. Flattery is words to try to make you feel good so you like the person. He'd flatter me. In one year, he came up to me and he said, Pastor Chris, you are one of the best speakers I've ever heard. But you do far too much stuff around here. You've got to have other people, you know, pick up the load a little bit. Help, let them help you out. Help, let them teach Sunday school class. You teach it too much. Let them do the counseling. Let them set up the classrooms. Let them do the mundane things. So I looked at him and I said, hey, how would you like to do those things? And he said, no, man, I'm too busy. I'm just too busy. I can't do that. I'm a busy man. I own my own business. I don't have time for this. There's people that aren't that busy that you could get to do this. Do you hear pride is saying, I'm better, I'm better, I'm special. I'm exempt where the normal guy can do it, but you're talking to somebody that's not normal. I'm special. Second lie 
Lucifer's thrown out of heaven and he comes to earth and his name changes and he's given a different title. We call him Satan. Satan isn't actually his name, it's his title. It means the accuser. The one who's accusing the character of God to everybody. He's always throwing God's name in contempt. Well, he comes into the garden, chapter 3, you probably know the story, puts on a snake costume, goes up to Adam and Eve, and he sees that tree that God said you can't eat from and says, see the fruit? Go ahead. And then Adam and Eve say, well, but God said if I eat that fruit, I die. And then Satan says, did God really say that? Are you sure? And Adam and Eve said, well, I want it. I like it. I will eat it. So this lie speaks to us like this. And by the way, you notice how the guy keeps growing, keeps getting a little bit bigger, probably does that to you like yeast. So here's this lie. Put your name in there. Chris, to find joy, satisfaction, and security, you can't trust God. Because that apple looked good, but God doesn't want me to have it. But if I don't have it, he's keeping away that joy. So I'm just going to have it. I'm going to take it. Because that is what I deserve. That's Satan's lie. And then he says, because God won't give it to you, you must do it yourself. You must fend for yourself because God really doesn't have your best in mind. So you have to become independent, self-autonomous. It's a lie from above that everybody believes. Pride says... Whatever it is, take it. You deserve it. Yeah, but God's... Eh, who cares what God says? Take it! Who needs God? Because you deserve it. If you think about this for a second, just think about everything we said in the beginning, God created, and then when we don't listen to the Creator, we become like God. Go ahead and hit it. We become our own gods. But if you really go down deep, when God says he forbids us from doing something and then we do it, and that's called sin. Sin actually means purposeful trespass. I want to trespass. What we're telling him is that number one, he's really not, his word, I don't really trust it. It's not reliable. Not only that, he's not good. I, he's not good. He doesn't have my best in mind. If he wants to hold back, I guess he doesn't. He's not good. And then we say, number one, he's not, he's not omniscient. So if he's not good, he doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent. If I have to take it for myself, he's not going to do it for me. So he doesn't have all power to give me what I need. And then we also say he's, when pride really kicks in, we really deep down believe he's not um, omnipresent. He's not everywhere because I'm going to sin and I, he doesn't see me do it. You sin, when you sin, you're sinning because you don't think God really sees you do it. Or you don't think he can do anything about it. So what you're doing, in a sense, pride is blasphemy. You are blaspheming his character. You are tearing down the perfect character of God to lift yourself up. You're throwing him off the throne. And we've forgotten we were created out of nothing. So, that's where it began. That's where pride began. So what happens is we start lying to ourselves that we deserve it. So when you 
think you're great, you stop listening to people, especially when they tell you you're not great. That really makes you crazy. So this is where Proverbs kicks in. Proverbs gives us two telltale signs to tell if you are proud or if pride is in your heart. And remember, pride is sneaky. It says when Lucifer became proud, his mind twisted. It bent, it perverted, and pride does that to our mind. We don't see rightly. So here's some signs to tell if you do have pride, because you won't see it. Number one, we find this in Proverbs 27, 21. It's more inferred, and 17, 3 through 4. And really, it's that pride craves praise. Actually, I was talking to somebody after the first service. They were relating it to actually praise for God, and I said, you can kind of tell if you don't want to give praise to God, that praise will go to you. But pride craves praise. Look at verse 21 of chapter 27. It says, the crucible is for silver. That means the crucible burns out the dross and the silver. It's a hot tool to burn it out. The furnace is for gold, same thing. And man is tested by praise, the praise he receives. So the idea is how you respond to praise is the test of a heart. A, pride, a proud person loves it. Loves it. Loves it. Tell me more. I'll, I'll often say, how was that sermon? Do you like it? And, you know, I'll, I'll kind of say it in a way of, and I realize, I catch myself doing, did you learn a lot from that? And really I'm fishing for, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> and that's when Jared comes and takes a pen and goes, Psst, stop it. Thank God for Jared. Thank God for him. Derek just laughs at you. <laughs> but pride craves praise. A famous theologian was on his deathbed, and he said to his friend as his body was slowly dying, do you know what I have found as my physical body fails is that the last thing to die in me is self-love. One commentator says this about that same comment. We have to be very careful, therefore, to watch what we say to our brother because we do him great injury when we supply unregulated praise. In other words, he goes on to say, this is why it is such a dangerous crisis when a proud heart meets flattering lips. Oh, a proud heart meets flattering lips. It's a perfect storm. Even if kindly meant, it quickly turns to poison, especially when we praise the religious man for his goodness. It will pull him farther away from relying on God's grace. Oh, think about that later and it's like, Oh, wow, so you mean to tell me the more religious you are and you're doing it so people think you are holy, actually the more you pull away from God and needing Him? Yes, you become independent, independently pious. That's dangerous. This is why Jesus said this in John 5.44. Write this down because I'm not going to go there. I just want you to listen. John 5.44 how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? We love it when people lift us up or tell us we're great, but when God does, it doesn't hit us the same way. Like last week, Ken talked about wealth, 
And he said, it's better to have a good name than to be wealthy. But many of us would still rather to be wealthy. So in a way, we really don't want to hear what God has to say. John 12, 43, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. He's talking about the Pharisees and the, the religious men that would wear those religious tunics and they would look haughty and proud and tell people how to be holy. And Jesus said, they love the glory that comes from man. That's why they're that way. There's a story in Acts chapter 12, verse 21, about this guy named King Herod. You might have heard of him. King Herod was sitting on his throne, it says. He put on his royal robes. He sat above the people and he started delivering a speech. And it was so impressive. Acts says the people heard him and they said, He has the voice of a God, not a man. And then it writes, Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So Herod gave a speech, and everybody said, Oh! <laughs> and Herod let it sink in, puffed up his chest, and the angel of the Lord struck him with in his insides being eaten out by worms. Yuck. That's what pride is to God. Yuck. Second sign that you might be proud. Go to Proverbs 13.10. This one is more obvious. The first one, we don't get praise that much because everybody wants to hear praise. So you don't get that much praise, but when you get it, you hold on to it. So you probably don't hear it too much. But this one is a more telltale sign if you're proud. Proverbs 13.10. The ESV says, by insolence, by insolence comes nothing but strife. The NIV says, by pride, comes nothing but strife. Some other versions say by arrogance comes nothing but strife. The Hebrew word means haughty, proud. So by insolence comes nothing but strife, but with those who take advice is wisdom. So the idea is, you know why there's strife and argument? And strife is angry argument. It's anger. Whenever you read through Proverbs, the angry man is the proud man. Since the proud person, you got to think of it like this, since the proud person has knocked the omnipotent God off of his throne, he must fight to keep it. You threw the greatest being off the throne, now you got to fight to keep it. And we fight to keep it through arguing and anger. So there the proud man sits. Like a new king on top of his world, how dare anybody question or deny him? That's the heart of the proud person. I want you to go to Second Chronicles. It, it, it's a great picture of what pride looks like in another king. Second Chronicles, in the Old Testament, after Kings, Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter 26. And we're going to look specifically at 16 to 21. But this is about a guy by the name of Uzziah. Uzziah was a powerful, I mean, this guy made Jerusalem great again. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Anyhow, it says in 26 verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness 
He cut out cisterns, so he brought water to the wilderness. He had large herds, so he had, man, he's rich. Verse 11, he had soldiers, an army of soldiers fit for war. Verse 12, I mean, he had the number of heads of fathers of mighty men of valor. He had a lot, 2,600. Verse 13, they had a big army. Verse 14, they had armed shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, stones for slinging. In verse 15, he, in Jerusalem he made machines invented by skillful men, beyond towers. So like catapults and uh, siege weapons. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, when they invade the white city, they have these catapults and siege weapons. Uzziah had them. He's powerful, mighty. Now we get to verse 16. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. What he's doing is he's a king. He's not a priest. He's going into the Holy of Holies and he's burning incense. You don't do that. But you're talking to Uzziah. He can do that. He's special. He's better. He's unique. Then you have verse 17. It's interesting if you really read what's being said. Azariah the priest went in after him. So he's going into the temple while Uzziah is doing the incense. He goes in there and he has to bring with him 80 priests who were courageous, men of valor. So it took 81 people to confront one proud man. Have you ever noticed proud people are dangerous and they're scary? And you don't like to confront them because you know they will go after you? And it takes courage just to criticize a proud man? Do your, do your friends or your family ever, are they ever walking on eggshells around you? Because they're scared to tell you the truth. Did you ever have that happen? That's what's happening here. I, I don't want to tell them. All right, I'll get 81 guy. Well, 81, we'll go in there and we'll tell them. So 18, and they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, uh, uh, King uh, <laughs> it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. No, no, don't do that. The law is pretty strict about that. One time that happened and a priest died in the Old Testament for doing that. Strange fire, they called it. But for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn the incense. That's for them, not you. So, priest, get out of the sanctuary, for you've done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. Now, watch verse 19. This is what a proud man does when you confront them. Then Uzziah was angry. He had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry at the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead. So God instantly cursed him because God hates pride. And so leprosy is that curse that you are separated from people and nobody wants to be around you and they are not, allow not allowed around you. Pride does the same thing. People don't want to be around you. When you're proud, you become lonely. Are you lonely? Do you crave praise? You want people to notice you, give you props. They, I wish they'd notice me. I deserve this. Do you find yourself often angry and arguing, defending yourself? Not me, not me, you know. 
We, know, we, don't, we really won't admit that because pride hides and it doesn't like to admit it's proud. So I've, I've gone a step further. I'm going to give you a few more, more specific indications, kind of to give another test of pride. Jared said, you shouldn't do this, but I said, I got to do this. He's like, I don't know. All right, here's the title of it. You might be proud if, get ready, you might be proud if, you might be proud if when you are late, it is fashionable. When others are late, they are inconsiderate. You might be proud when you change your plans, you're keeping your options open. Hey, man, I got to keep my options open. But when others do, they're just uncommitted and wishy-washy. Probably, they lie, lie. Well, you know, I had to change my plan. And then somebody doesn't show up. Oh, You might be proud if when you fall, or your sin, you know, I slipped up. It's a rare occurrence. You know, it doesn't normally happen to me. You know the kind of person I am. When other people slip up or sin, you call them hopelessly flawed sinners. Look at all these rotten people in the world. Look at the sinners. Yeah, but you do the same thing. Well, I don't mean it. You know, I don't mean it. You might be proud if when other people disagree with you, you react in anger and contempt. How dare they? But when you disagree, I'm just sharing my insight and my expertise. You can learn a lot from me. When uh, you might be proud when others don't feel sorry for you when you lose or don't get what you want, so you pout and you play the martyr. Nobody notices. Nobody cares. They, don't, they just don't care. They don't see me. But when others lose, you say, suck it up. Suck it up. It's no big deal. You might be proud if you feel you can vent and explode when you're upset. But others, when they're upset, they've got to weigh their words very... Whew. Don't, say, don't vent. Your words hurt, you know, but you just did well that's different i feel strongly you might be proud when you make plans you expect others to agree to those plans and then carry them out when others make plans you say well they're on their own they can if they want to do that they're on their own you might be proud when you really believe you see the world as it is and believe others and even god don't really understand that you know i'm mad at god i'm mad at god right now he he didn't do this for me. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand? Pride is a weird thing. And it's a dangerous thing because God has one response to it. And we find it in Proverbs 16, verse 5. I want, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to let it just kind of like fall. Kind of. It's kind of like going to be like fertilizer. I'm going to throw it on the grass and let it fall. But you've got to let this sink in. Proverbs 16.5. Here it goes. This is God's response to it. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured. He will not go unpunished. 
seriously? An abomin- Do you know what an abomination is? In Old Testament language, an abomination is something that is morally repulsive, so repulsive to God it makes him sick. He is saying pride makes him sick. You thinking you're better than other people or special or exempt makes him sick. And he punishes it. That is why often in the New Testament it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride must be punished because it wants to kick God off the throne and put you there. So if you're proud or if you're flirting with excessive self-love, independence from God, I can make it on my own, it makes God sick, and so he needs to extract poison. And as I'm thinking about this, how does he do that? How does he extract poison? Because honestly, pride is hard. Every one of us, pride is in here a lot. Right now, pride is here. But you don't know it. And if it's in the church, oh man, the world's infested with it. It's like an infestation. So how does God get rid of it? There's really only one way. There's really only one way, and I want you to take this to heart. This is, it's funny, sometimes I just want you to take this to heart. The way that he did it is he implemented something called the cross. I'm reading this book called The Crucifixion. And in the second chapter of the book, the author asks this question. Why does it matter how Jesus died? Why crucifixion? The writer says this. The manner of Jesus' death has stamped the character of faith for all time. He made it central when he said that anyone who would be his disciple must take up his cross and follow me. Taking up the cross means utter humiliation. Jesus died the death of a nobody. He was publicly shamed, which was meant to cause embarrassment and degradation. That was the point. So think about this. Jesus, the rightful king of the universe, who made everything out of nothing, showed us how to live, to be willing to go to the cross. And by going to the cross, Jesus killed our pride. Because it's the exact opposite of self-righteous piety. Look at my religion. Look how holy it is. It's the exact opposite. The cross was out of the city, out of the, out of the synagogue. It was out in the open to say, I'm nothing. It is the murder of self-love. The writer comments about how Paul called the cross a stumbling block and foolishness to both the Jew and the Greek. And they write this, Most church-going people are Jews on Sunday morning. And Greeks the rest of the time. Religious people want visionary experiences and spiritual uplift. Secular people want proofs, arguments, demonstrations, philosophy, science. Give me reasons to follow you, God. A striking fact, neither one of these groups wants to hear about a cross because it's embarrassing for self-made mankind. There's no glamour to it. There's no excitement in it. Nothing to feed pride, but it kills it. So here I want you to consider the cross for a second. Let's just consider it. And consider the purpose of the cross. It was meant to utterly crush the criminal, reduce him to nothing, and destroy all self-worth. 
It began by scourging. The Roman guards used a leather whip made of cords to which small pieces of metal or bone had been fastened. The victim was naked, tied to a post, exposing the back and the buttocks. The skin would be pulled away and tissue exposed. The metal shards would reach the skeletal muscles, rendering immediate pain and blood loss. The idea was to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse or death. It was common to taunt and to ridicule. In Jesus' case, he's given a false crown. Yeah, you want the throne? <laughs> right, here's a crown. A twisted crown of thorns. And he's also given a purple robe of mockery. Next, the victim was paraded through the streets. This is the Roman triumphal procession. People would line the streets laughing, spitting, shouting, heaving stones and excrement which were hurled at the lowly prisoner. Then the wooden posts of the crossbeam were laid down where the person was thrown there on his back. Wrists and feet were nailed to it. Then he was lifted high. This is where the pain really began. Some victims lasted long hours and even days dying. Jesus died quickly, probably accounting for the intensity of the scourging. Each exhaled breath could only be achieved by tremendous effort. The only way to gain breath was to push oneself up by legs and feet or by pulling on the wrists and the arms, which both were nailed. The cross was sheer agony. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And to add all this, the writer says, his bodily functions failing, loss of bladder control, insects feasting on wounds and orifices, unspeakable thirst, muscle cramps, bolts of constant nerve damage on hands and feet, scourged back, scraping the tender swollen muscle tissue against sharp splinters of the dry wood on the cross. Jesus died truly and completely alone. The weight of his own body is what killed him as it hung, causing his own diaphragm to suffocate him. The cross is meant to shock and kill our pride. That's its purpose, it's to shock us and to kill our pride. Everything pride wants, glamour, wants to look good, wants the title, everything pride wants, everything pride lives for, the cross condemns. The writer finishes by saying, Today's church is congratulatory, certain of its own spiritual attainments. Look how great we are. Whereas the cross of Christ displays God's leveling of all distinctions in his death. The cross is offensive to everyone. All human achievement is called into question. Crucifixion itself, as an utterly vile method, was worse than any of us are presently capable of fully imagining. Reflecting upon it may help us, however, under the guidance of the Spirit to draw closer to this unimaginable act of God's love for all humanity. He loved us. He became sin for us. He took our pride for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He became sin for us. So the cross is meant to kill my pride. 
and it gives me back my real life. That is why I think Paul says this in Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So tell me, just three questions for you. Tell me. How can a Christian be proud when our Savior died naked, humiliated, and alone? Why do you think you need special treatment when Jesus was treated like a common beast and animal? And what do you boast in that wasn't first given to you? You are twice removed from nothing. He became sin for us. 